Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankelberg. And I'm Philip Sage in Australia. Hey, Philip. It's good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Been uh, tied up and busy and doing a couple of things. How have you been? Oh, good, good. And we just spent 20 minutes talking about uh, wood splitting and wood cutting and, and eucalyptus or gum trees, as you call them, and all kinds of other stuff. So we said, hey, we need to talk about reliability a little bit. So let's do that. So okay. I got a question for you. So have, have you ever, you know, opened up a calculator or a spreadsheet or, a, you know, regression package of some sort and, and dumped a bunch of numbers in it and you know, maybe later after you got your plot and the regression analysis, everything else said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> did, is that really right? You know, did, did it pass the, I've had it where it, it doesn't quite pass the sniff test. You know, that doesn't look quite <laughs> right. I got perfectly good numbers to six digits, but that doesn't look right. Have you ever had something like that going on? Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, encountered it quite a few times where, I mean, you innocently pile the numbers of all your failure data for a given class of uh, assets into one of the packages. And it, uh, you know, maybe uh, an example might be uh, wooden power poles that typically average, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years life, uh, service life uh, here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you get a number that's calculating uh, probability uh, likelihoods, uh, you know, out to 129 or 132 years, which of course is, you know, it's unheard of. Uh, the power poles don't last that long, but sure enough, you've got an answer that says that it's so. Uh, so yeah, we, we, you know, I think it really depends on uh, the uh, data and understanding the data correctly and making sure that that data matches the software that you're trying to use. Well, I think it, it I think, yeah, that last part is what I'm going to chime in on is that there's, one of the hard parts is that we have all these different regression packages and software packages and code and all this other fancy stuff we can use. Yet I don't run into that many reliability engineers that are also PhD statisticians <laughs> that really know what are the algorithms underneath this stuff and really have studied it in great length. And I, I ran into this when I was in high school in chemistry, it was calculators were first coming around and, this kid pushed numbers in it and he, he was calculating how many moles would come out of this reaction or whatever it was. And he ended up with minus 74 moles. I'm like, it's really, and he wrote that down and was wondering why he got the answer wrong. I, I put it in my calculator and I'm like, well, I think he hit a minus sign one too many times. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you hit it on the hit it on the nail on the head. Uh, it's all these software packages are operating an algorithm, much like a calculator. And you put numbers in and you hit enter and you get a number back out, but you really don't know uh, what's happening uh, in the, in the algorithm. And uh, unfortunately what I find is a lot of the uh, softwares that are commercially available today they really don't go into any uh, depth of, as to uh, what algorithm they're using, or even if they do tell you what they're using, uh, what the assumptions, the underlying assumptions of that algorithm were. And as a result, you, you, it's very easy, and I've seen 
numbers of um, of uh, reliability engineers here uh you know really just accepting data that uh, is quite impossible oh i had that i was in a legal case i was an expert witness in a legal case and they were showing me these graphics of projecting um time to failure for their product you know based on a weekly groupings that they were doing and they were showing some of them had negative it had probability of failing, you know, two and three months prior to it being assembled. <laughs> yeah, you wonder how that's possible, don't yeah, you? Yeah, well, you know, maybe they had insight into their suppliers were going to mess something up or, you know, prior. But it was just, so I'm trying to explain to these lawyers is that one of the basic tenets is when it really doesn't look like that's feasible, there's probably something wrong in the way you either set up that information going into the analysis or your analysis is inappropriate for the type of data that you're, you're working with. And, you know, and one of the things I, and it was also one where they, every single different analysis for the exact same product line for the exact same dominant failure mechanism they used a different distribution. And I said, why did they do that? And he says, well, we use the, um, there's a, a fitting wizard in this one package that will fit, I don't know, 15 different distributions to it. And then it'll check it against three different um, goodness of fit style of regression yeah, fits, same thing. And, so, and I was like, you know, these different, goodness of fit things work in different classes of distributions, not all distributions. And they're just mm. kind of equally weighting all three of these to give you the grand answers. Well, that's really kind of inappropriate. <laughs> you know, it's just wrong yeah. is the yeah. way I really should have said it. And beyond that, if you've got one failure mechanism, you know, let's say this bolt is wearing out is a different example from my recent past um, is is that likely that every week, every different set of bolts I get failures on are, with the same mechanism would have a completely different distribution to describe it? This is, you know, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense that it would randomly fit different, dis- different patterns just because it, I have, you know, one extra piece of data this week and one less piece of data last week. And then it says, well, now it's a three parameter variable. No, no, no. It's a gamma distribution. No, no, no. It's I, one of Chris, Chris Jackson's favorite quotes is, you know, you can't check your brain at the door. You got to actually think about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. No, I, um, you know, the the wizards are kind of uh, uh, unique, but I don't think that they're always uh, correct in their analysis. And even when you use a wizard, you're using somebody else's overarching programming thought and logic as to uh, to make that recommendation. And you're right. Uh, one of the, the key fundamental uh, laws of modeling anything, and, and in this case, we're modeling a the uh, future failure uh, likelihood with a probability distribution is that the real world matches your model. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then you've you, you got to change uh, your model. And, uh, so that's why I think uh, the many different distributions are useful. And you also need to probably look at it in the context of what are you trying to do? And, and, uh, at times, you know, if you're trying to do something quick and in, uh, uh, e and informative, 
you know, you may not have to get the distribution exactly perfect in order to get the information that you're after. So it really does depend uh, on what you're trying to do. And, and you, you just can't, in my opinion, uh, pile a bunch of numbers into a software and uh, hit hit go <clears throat> and then copy down the results. Really, what you need to do is understand what that software is doing, what type of algorithm, what the sensitivities are, what it's good at, what it's not good at, and uh, and even run a, a series of tests to con to convince yourself that you in fact do understand how that software is operating and it's producing results under known test cases that are confirming that the software is operating the way you think it is so that when you put in your data that you uh, you get a result that you have some confidence in yeah no no totally agree and it's it's one of the maybe it's because i started my you know statistics education and and practical work with you know, I basically had to code stuff or find snippets of code and then make sure it was actually doing what I thought it was doing. Coupled with, as I had Wayne Nelson's book on mm. on accelerated testing, and he goes into great length on every single setup and, and approach to solving these problems. Well, here's the assumptions. And here's how it goes. And it, even more recently, I was working with escalators and I... And there were repairable systems, and we had reasonable data from most of the techs that were, were operating these things. And so I, I started plotting them using a, um, a mean cumulative plots or mean cumulative functions, I think they're called. It's basically just a cumulative count on the vertical axis versus time. And I went back you know, about a year or two years of data. And I went right straight to Wayne's book that talks about this, and he has one on recurrent data analysis. And, and, and a primary assumption of using these plots to do any kind of judgment of what's going on is that the repair time is negligible compared to the operating time. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I'm looking at these plots, and there's this great big long, there's no failures happening. And there'd be like a dozen failures, and then it would be a, a you know three, four months with nothing going on. And it was just by coincidence that I ran in, I was looking into one of these escalators in more detail. And what they had done is they shut the escalator down, took it out of service completely, so it couldn't fail. And they shipped the, the gearbox or something off to get refurbished or rebuilt or something like that. And it took them months to do it. But if you look at the plot, it looks like it had this massive failure-free period and it was really flat, and which is a good <laughs> sign on one of those plots. And I was like, hmm, that's not what it's really saying here. This plot doesn't tell you that story of what happens when in a year, if it doesn't, if it takes three months to do a repair over a one-year period of time, well, this is kind of breaking that negligible thing. Yeah. <laughs> and... I had to convince the people I'm showing these plots to, and finally I just put a great big red line with an X on it going, it was down for a month or two months or stuff. This, you can't use that. That information is bad <laughs> yeah. given the slope yeah. of this thing and everything else. And so if you draw a line through this and project it forward, it's not meaningful for you. And they all wanted to do that. It's like, uh, no, no, let's not do yeah. that. Yeah, it's 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 a, a challenge. Uh, you know, one of the bigger challenges I've run into is uh, with uh, uh, long life uh, data 
especially when you only have a small amount of uh, time to observe that data. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, one of the uh, predominant challenges, as I mentioned earlier in the utility industry, where things last 50, 60, 70 years, is that uh, computers uh, only really got uh, introduced in the oh, perhaps late 60s or 70s to most of these businesses. And so uh, before that, the records were all kept on paper. And that transition of paper to computer records means you've only got data at best uh, back into uh, perhaps the 1970s. And uh, uh, if you've upgraded your uh, ERP system, then you probably don't have data back beyond the beginning of that uh, new ERP system whether it be SAP or Maximo or any of the other asset management uh, softwares. Yeah. So uh, the, the challenge is when you have just a very small sliver window of data in a very long life, uh, how do you uh, extract that? And often uh, you're often uh, missing a lot of the data that occurs from the before the left of the data set begins. And, and, and as an example, Fred, I, if you were – uh, had failure data for the last <clears throat> 10 years, but the assets were actually installed 60 years ago. You really don't know what happened uh, before 10 years ago, and you don't know anything about assets that may have been installed 60 years ago that may have failed uh, after 30, 35, 40 years yep. in service because they are not in, in your window of observation. Yep. So that's what we typically call left truncated data, and it needs to be it's it's a type of data that you can't just take the rest of the data that you do have and put into a package because part of the distribution that you're trying to regress is missing it's an interesting problem it is and it's not common in a lot of the regression packages that we have available to us it's not a trivial problem and in talking to some of these uh, software package folks as they go well it's not a common problem so we don't most people are looking at you know, right sensor data or they have complete data. And so that's what we make for them. And, but you don't put any warnings on this <laughs> anywhere no. that says, you know, if you don't, if it is left censored, then you, you got to treat it differently. We can't get there from here. Um, the software yeah. went no, right? If I pick time zero as 10 years ago and, and go forward, it assumes everything was put into service at that point or, you know, if we list the time of service, it's um, the software is not at fault in these cases. It's, and I don't know how they could warn you if you're just sticking in numbers into it. You don't, you're not telling it a whole story. Um, might be a use for AI at some point is, you know, <laughs> describe your problem. All right, this is what I got. And this is the issue. Is it, well, you yeah. can't go forward from here. You need somebody else's package. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're right. There's very few softwares that uh, will uh, handle that type of data when you've got it. And, um, you know, I think uh, most of the softwares do what is easy uh, and, and has been established in the industry for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the method, uh, ordinary least squares, for example, on, on complete data is, is generally fairly accurate if you've got enough data. And those methods uh, really are, are, I think, attributed to uh, Heard and Johnson in this in the early '60s, uh, out of uh, if I recall, General Motors and Ford or Chrysler maybe, uh, but in the U.S. automotive industry, and they were looking at uh, warranties or failures uh, that uh, occurred from each model year. So mm -hmm. naturally, all of the data is uh, made within the same year, and uh, you kind of look seven, eight, nine years down the road to see how many of those 
cars that were introduced in that particular year are still operating, you know, maintenance free or how many have had transmission problems. And, yep. uh, you know, you've got very simple data that all kind of begins in service at the same time. Uh, and you don't have uh, any data from before because you're only uh, isolated to that particular model year or that, that cohort. That's really one of the hard parts, though, is people need to realize that, you know, you can define your population. And if I'm only interested in telephone poles that were put into service within my observation period, then you're okay. Yet if I am trying to treat those 50-year history where I have no knowledge of it, well, then I have to actually approach the problem differently. Um, so it's it's that's the part that I find I don't know, frustrating. It's part of that I am always checking. It's just the way I kind of got brought up in the in doing analysis is double check and check your assumptions. And if you don't know what the assumptions are, that's a bad assumption to start with. <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. No, when, one idea I had here was that I know very, very early on in my playing around with some of these packages, I had a stack of data that was only the failures. And so I had, I don't know, um, warranty data, for example. I, I, and it was just the return products from damage, from it didn't work, it, you know, all kinds of reasons, but it was just the failures. That was the package of data that I was handed. And I didn't even dawn on me, which was a very big mistake, that because when I dumped all that in, to the software package and blotted a Weibull, it showed 100% would fail within two years because mm. I had two years history of data and every single unit I had failed within that period. So that, okay, well, that makes sense. That's all I have. And I showed my boss it and he goes, wait a second, we've got thousands of these units still in the field operating. What about those? And I hadn't heard of censoring data yet at yeah. that point or anything like that. And so I went back to the drawing board and read some more and, and opened up Wayne's book and said, oh, I have to count the ones that haven't failed because they have information. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, couple that with, I run into clients every now and then that say, well, when we do the troubleshooting or failure analysis on return products, we often find no trouble found or it's obviously customer abuse. And I always wonder about the obvious part, but sometimes it's 25% or more of the returns are classified either no trouble found or, or abuse. So how do you account for that if you're looking at say warranty data? Hmm. And and the answer I get from these people is, well, we know what that is, or we don't know what's happening there, so we just set it aside. We don't count it at all. Not even right censoring it, saying we don't know if it's failed or not, or treating it one way or the other. And I try to make the point on them is that there are they are failures in the eyes of your customer, one way or the other, and they cost yeah. you money because you just had to do failure analysis on it and return shipping and all this other stuff on it. It's a failure. You might call it, you know, customer abuse, or you might call it bad workmanship, or you might call it whatever. It still costs you money. When it ends up being 25% of your total returns, you might want to do something about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yet it was say, well, it's, we, we just dismiss that. That's not, 
we, that's not real data. We're, we're going to take that out of the system. And I'm like, Hmm, that's really kind of screw up the rest of your analysis. Let me explain how that works. And, and they kind of look like deer in the headlight at that point, because they start diving a little too deep into explaining, explaining, I think is probably the right word for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it's a, it's always a challenge and, and you're right. Uh, not everybody earlier you mentioned is a, a, a degreed physicist, statistician uh, extraordinaire and, uh, not everybody understands all these concepts and which technique is uh, uh, appropriate uh, and, and uh, when when you shouldn't try to do things. And, you know, uh, the case in point, I guess, is if if you have a very large population, uh, you're uh, very early in, in the life. Uh, you've, you've only got, uh, you know, maybe seven failures out of a thousand units in service. It's very difficult to uh, to analyze that type of data when you've only when you're only actually seeing the beginnings of the left tail and accurately to uh, predict where that distribution is going to end up uh, as as time progresses. So it, you know it's an interesting challenge. There are some some uh, areas that the algorithms don't. That's one of them that I just mentioned that yep. don't seem to uh, you know do to perform very well and and that you. Really, you know, the, the best case, of course, is complete data. The next best case is uh, slightly right-censored data. But when you have largely right-censored data, uh, those algorithms really suffer, in, uh, in my experience, in their ability to return a realistic value. Yeah. And that's, the, even with confidence bounds on it, it doesn't, that's not what we're talking about. It's nope. not that it's, were you doing the appropriate analysis for the data set you got? I think the bottom line is, is what saved me so many times after getting caught out a couple of times is check the assumptions, just make sure the algorithm's doing what you think it's doing. Like you said, Philip is run those test cases, known situations on it. Do the sniff test. Does this match reality for what we're looking at right now? Or is there a reasonable explanation for that? Check the assumptions underneath it. If it needs negligible, very quick repair times and that's not happening, well, this may not be the appropriate way to look at this stuff. Yeah. All of that matters. So it's it more of a, a, a case where it's just a bit of warning saying, hey, if you're running into some data analysis, check, you know, ask it, make sure you know what you're doing. And if you don't, it's a chance to learn something, which is not a bad thing at all. Um, so anyway, so if you've listening to this and if you've got a story, like, you know, you put some numbers in and everything failed three months before it was built, um, kind of result, you know, it, you know, I'd love hearing those stories. And then what you did about it, what'd you learn and how did you overcome that? And, or, if you find this interesting and have some situation where you're not quite sure, let us know. We'll take a look real quick and let you know what we think. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can find uh, a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Philip and I and, and the rest of the hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and through our about pages. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. Nothing makes a, a a data analyst as happy as a big stack of data, especially if you got complete data. I, I should caveat that, right, Philip? <laughs> yeah, well, we we can all dream, but uh, very seldom does that dream come true. That's true. Up, 
<laughs> that is very true. It's um, but anyway, good luck with your analysis and have a good time with that. Good talking to you again, Philip. We'll talk again All soon. Right. All right. Take care, Fred. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.